What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have spent several episodes in October um, honoring Domestic Violence Month and honoring it by highlighting community organizations and members who have been exploring alternative responses to domestic violence or IPV. We're going to continue that conversation today with Kosaria Henderson, member of the Board of Directors for the California Partnership for Domestic Violence. She began working in the field of anti-gender-based violence in the 1990s. She is focused on the intersections between anti-violence, racial justice, community-level advocacy and prevention, and transformative justice. Good morning, Kosaria. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's very exciting to have you on the show um, and always good to talk to you. It doesn't happen nearly enough. Kosaria, I want to start um, with a little bit about you and if you could just share with my listeners how you came into the work in the 1990s. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I came in the work really as a sexual assault counselor, um, initially seeing Um, what was happening to women largely and then later men and children um, and trans women that when they received care in the hospitals and didn't have someone there to give them, show them and talk about their rights um, around rape, sexual assault. Um, But really, after doing this work for many, many years, I really had to face the fact um, that I too am a survivor and that my background and my family's background is really, has been rooted in this work for many, many, many generations. And, um, it wasn't until I was doing this work and I had moved from sexual assault work to into anti-violence work, um, specifically IPV or intimate partner violence work that I realized the generation of, uh, um, generational violence that occurred in my own family and to me, uh, as a survivor. And Kosaria, can you talk a bit about what the field uh, of uh, you know, anti-gender-based violence, anti-domestic violence uh, looked like at that time, and particularly um, the the heavy, you know, reliance and and, and in the pursuit of uh, the utilization of the carceral uh, system as the primary response? Yeah, absolutely. So. When I entered into the work, um, I came in as a crisis counselor. Um, I came in um, doing dual services for domestic violence and sexual assault and, um, and, and working directly in the shelter systems. Our systems are, um, had begun really rooting themselves in, um, in their MOUs, their memorandums of understanding their, um, with law enforcement systems. They had really begun to create systems that were parallel to and along with law enforcement uh, with this understanding that um, this thought process that that people had to be removed um, in, in a family unit in order to be safe with this understanding that criminal uh, that criminalizing someone is the only way towards safety and regardless of what the survivor and their family wanted. And it was um, it was this option or no other option in many, many, many cases. And often um, it wasn't just one law enforcement system, it was many law enforcement systems in, in which we were aligning ourselves with. Um, and some of that was based on funding and others were based on the lack of any sort of 
you know, imagination of any sort of other type of response and what that could be. Uh, and really one of the, the worst parts about it for me is that the, that it did not center the survivor and that family and what they wanted and what they needed. Um, it really centered, um, here's are the options we have and you must choose between the ones we have in order to actually gain safety. Right. And, and let's walk through, you know, a, a little bit how that could play out. So one in, in terms of not having any options was let's talk about the survivor that wanted their family to stay together, but just wanted the mm-hmm. violence to stop. I would say in my experience, with most survivors, um, particularly survivors of color mm-hmm. in my experience. But it's um, and I'm uh, as a black woman, um, it definitely was my family. Uh, there was no interest in, necess- in in removing someone from our entire family. There was an interest in making sure that that people were safe. And um, and so I think it plays out in the ways that families are torn apart. Um, they are forced that that's the only answer. And what we saw is um, in, in that in that same system. What we also see on the services side on the um, is we see survivors that are that return and return and return to their family and you see a system that that even penalizes the survivor for returning um, that eventually says that this is your fault and that this that you're asking for some for the violence to continue because you will not leave and it goes even further because often these systems then also include um, and with law enforcement off, often mandate to include uh, child welfare services. And so you see survivors that are often that may want just the violence to stop. And instead, they find themselves not only separated from their their partner, but also separated from their children. Right, which in, in itself... Um it is more violence. And one of the things that I talk about in terms of family separation, and Kosari, I know you do too, is that actually f- intact families, right? However those families are comprised is one of the indicators of healthy communities, right? So if we're talking about mm-hmm. safety, one of the things that we're talking about is whole and healthy families. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then from there, if you could segue to this is why, right, the utilization of the carceral state only um, or as the primary is is a problem because one of the things that does not do then is address the causer of harm and this person that has learned to express their trauma through violence. Yeah, um, you know, actually there's... um we just released a report. I mean, not uh, that we just had a report released recently um, on batteries intervention programs. So these are the programs that are supposedly in place in order to help support folks that are harming. And even amongst those programs uh, in the state of California, there was no uniformity. It was, um, and in fact, um, there was uh, quite a bit of what they would call recidivism. There was quite a bit um, of not of unregulated um, control and 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 lack alternative treatments, alternative ways of responding and of working with um, the entire family. And I say that to say that there are this the idea of. Uh, working with an intact family, we uh, the entirety of the family is is something that we're seeing an increase for people uh, uh, of interest in, but it is something that still are more our, our funded systems are not necessarily 
uh, always on board with. And I think it is it, it is absolutely important that we think about the entirety of what a healthy and whole family looks like, and that and that that is how we move through community in this world, and that is also how um, our our we see our children. Um, get through the trauma that exists in all of our lives and the compounded trauma that exists in our communities is through the, is through having those whole healthy relationships. And we, it is really, really important that we are thinking through ways to ensure that everyone and our, and I say everyone, meaning both the person that is the survivor, both the person that harmed the children that are involved with and their broader family and our community um, receives the care and love and um, healing that they deserve. Sorry, I want you to help me. I'm digressing for where I was going to go, but I, I, I want you to help me un- unpack um, a little bit more history, right? And and that is that of the work of our foremothers that did mm-hmm. pursue this carceral path. Um, but I have heard, or and I have heard, because I actually don't think it's a zero-sum game. I think it's a both and, and I want your thoughts on this. I've heard them all sort of be thrown away as carceral feminists. Now, you know my mom was one of the folks that did some of that work, and I find myself in this really interesting position, right, trying to, I don't say dismantle, but evolve, maybe. <laughs> um, you know, in partnership with folks like you, evolve the work of them. And I wonder if you could just unpack some of the complexities there, because I don't know... And I think it's fair, but maybe I'm just, you know, I'm biased. I don't think it's fair to sort of toss them all away and just say, well, they were carceral feminists and they didn't care about what happened to black and brown people. I don't know that all of them saw it coming. And at the same time, there were black feminists that were ringing the alarm bell and saying, we don't want more cops. Yeah, agreed. Um, so I, I agree with you. I don't, I wouldn't throw them all away at all. In fact, I would, I agree with you. I think we're building on, on the work. I know I stand every day on the shoulders of women doing this work many, many, many moons ago. Um, I, I think that there are, that the movement's pretty split. I think honestly, we had a lot of, you know, in that space of feminism, right? We have, we have the sort of traditional white feminists that, that get, a lot of the credit um, for a lot of the work that we're really also preaching this idea of we need law enforcement to take us seriously. And I do not think that that's necessarily wrong, right? We, we want, if, if a survivor feels like that this is what is helpful to them, I mean, at some point we should get into the report, but that's not necessarily what we hear from survivors um, right now. But yeah. if someone wants yeah. to contact them and feels that that system can help and support and keep them safe, um, then the survivor gets to, you know, that family and survivor gets to make those decisions and that choice, right? And we want, then in that case, we want that system to take them seriously. We want that system right. to listen. And I think they fought for that, right? So when I think about it, I think, yes. Um, um, I think there weren't a lot of options. I think that, that things were often dichotomized, right, in this idea that it's this or that. So you either live in violence or we remove someone. And that there wasn't a lot of support for thinking through other options of being um, in our communities. And there wasn't a lot of support. And, and that they couldn't see down the road to things like three strikes They couldn't in California. Like, they right. couldn't see down the road to see our black and brown brothers like locked in cages um, at alarming rates 
and and what that meant for our communities and our families. So I don't I I I don't think it's about blame. I think it is about evolution, as you said. And I think it is about all right. So now, though, uh, I say I think of my goal as an advocate in this work is to listen to survivors, and uh, and we need to respond and listen to survivors and families and communities um, that are around us about what they want, and ensure that we have answers that fit what they want. And and I think that that is um, for me that is that is the shift. And not that they weren't listening. I think that they were trying to build and they were trying to build systems where that would that would that would even respond um so i agree with you i uh, a thousand percent agree with you you uh where I'm, I'm i'm being a little um I'm, I'm utilizing you for an alternative purpose here as well, Kosaria. Uh, you worked very closely with my organization, uh, the Anti-Police Terror Project, on the creation of our new guide on this topic. Um, and listening to the survivor um, was, you know, a thread, of course, throughout. We, we talked to you, we mm-hmm. talked to survivors, we talked to other frontline uh, IPV advocates. Um, the the other thing in there was a real focus on safety because I think that there's this idea that those of us that are saying we don't want cops aren't being realistic about about safety. And then the, the third piece, which I feel really came for me, was the importance of the localization of community response mm-hmm. to IPV. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I, um, you know, as, as of course you know, Kat, like, when, so the the most recent report, which again came out from the National Domestic Violence Hotline, um, you know what we know is over eighty percent of survivors who called law enforcement said they didn't help them, they didn't help them feel safe, um, they didn't help or they didn't make them feel uh, or they made them feel less safe, and so it is um, even more important that we are at that place of listening and localizing. <laughs> what we're hearing so that our responses really um, can be utilized in such a way um, that that survivors are able to get what they need in that particular community and that that response fits what, um, what happens and what is needed in that community. And one of the things that I really appreciate about um, Anti-Police Terror Project's report that's coming out and, and the work that you will do is it's really this idea that it could include a, a, a slew of people in a particular community that we're not that that a response may also include our spiritual leaders, our healers. Like a response doesn't um, isn't necessarily um, tied to just these types of individuals, but it is really really localized in such a way that it it meets those needs of the community that that forms and responds in and of itself. And so I think it is extremely important um, that survivors have other options. And, um, and you know, I always love to say that if it, whoever they're calling for support and help, um, they could have called 911. Those are, those are three numbers. Instead, they went ahead and called a whole collection of numbers of who that is and very intentional reason because they didn't want that response. They didn't want the response that comes with 911, and that in of itself is is an important piece that we have to we have to lift up and we have to hear and truly hear what they're saying when they make that call. 
Which goes to the last question I'm going to ask you before we talk about the conference for a bit. And that is that this is actually not new. Our aunties, um, our grannies, our mamas, our, our, our uncles, our teal, right? We have been doing this in black and brown and indigenous communities, developing community response, taking care of women um, who may have found themselves uh, in a violent relationship for a really, really long time. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This is this is what we do. It is um, in my family, um, you know, both as a child, from a, as a survivor who, as a child who did not want my dad taken away <laughs> um, when the cops showed up, who had no, who including my mother, who did not want my father taken away. Um, uh, uh, you know, what I wanted was someone and to come in and pull him aside. And help him understand what was to, what was happening. I wanted someone to help and love on my mom in a different kind of way, um, you know. Um, and and for the times in which the church did that, the times in which the church helped and supported. Um, I think of my in my own case, you know. I didn't I I didn't involve the the system. Um, I involved the people around me, the people in my community, the people in my circle. And I think we have been doing this, and I, I think we learned that from um, from from our background, from from our culture, from the from our community level work. And and I, I remember even as a child, we we had women in our house, not necessarily people I knew, who stayed for periods of time and then you know went home. Um, we had yeah. uh, children in our house who stayed for a period of time and then went home. And we, we've always been doing the work. It has always been here. And, and it's just now it just feels, it does feel, I will say, a little bit more prominent as I think about it. We've had a lot of deaths. And, you know, um, I'm sure you're aware, but in September alone for in eight days, we had five people die in domestic violence um, in the Bay um, in just an eight-day period. And during that time, two of those folks were killed by law enforcement, a law enforcement officer in the middle of the domestic violence. Uh, um, and two of those other folks did all the things that traditional domestic violence um, agencies, would, uh, mine included, would say um, to do. Um, they involved the system. They tried to get a restraining order. They tried to, to respond in the ways of the traditional means, and still, and still they were killed, right? And so what we know more than ever is we have to have other tools. We have other ways of responding, Um to domestic violence, to intimate partner violence that works, that is that gives us options and that keeps our community centered. Mm. And that is why uh, we've got to continue to do the work of shifting the lens, which is the theme of the conference, uh, the California Partnership for Domestic Violence uh, is kicking off on Monday. Uh, talk to my listeners about what's coming up. Sorry. Uh, it's it's going to be amazing. Um, it is. It starts Monday. It's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and um, it is virtual. So anyone who is interested in joining, you know, we're. It's going to start off um, with Judge Abby Abenathy and um, and really helping us understand the role of the importance of working with our tribal communities in this state and what that looks like. Um, you know, again, centering community, right? <laughs> what does that look like for us um, as a movement, as a whole? And I say movement very, very broadly. The state of California is 
so vast and there's so much to work with. Um, but we are also going, you know, to hear from uh, our um, past, I would say, folks that have been working in this movement for a really, really long time and how this has changed and shaped um, and how, how um, we're going to connect things around the reproductive rights and reproductive justice um, and domestic violence. And, you know, I, um, it's going to... It's going to culminate with with you, Kat, and I. Um, possibly the thing I'm most excited about, um, but really bring together, um, really bringing together a broader view of this work, of what this work can include, of what this work, quite frankly, what I what it we demand <laughs> include, um, and and. And all of the all of the things in between. I mean, there there are some really great panels, some really great workshops. Um, they're going to be talking about everything from um, from folks from survived and punished, um, who are survivors that 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 defended themselves and were incarcerated for it. So there's an there's a track that focuses specifically on that and what that means and and what is that and how are they involved in our work and how do they shape our work and what did what the systems have done um you know to really focus focus uh, focusing on lgbtqia plus work and what is what is what does that look like in the systems and how do we ensure that folks have what they need um you know we're going to talk about prevention <laughs> you know and the need to for us not even to get here <laughs> to get to these places and how can we, how can we center that? And it looks very differently than, than in our school systems. So there are lots of opportunity and pathways for folks that are interested. And um, you can just go to the website, which is shifting the lens, 2022.org and see all of these options that are there and these amazing presenters. So exciting place. All right, Kasaria. Well, I will for sure see you on Monday. I'm very much looking forward (laughs) to spending three days uh, just deep in this work. Thank you so much for joining us for your work and your passion. We have been speaking to Kasaria Henderson, member of the Board of Directors for the California Partnership for Domestic Violence, who began working in the field of anti-gender-based violence in the 1990s. Their conference is next Monday through Wednesday. We'll provide a registration link in the archive uh, of this show. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>